Amen. That is absolutely the case. Our God is in control. And because of that, it can be well with our soul. Let's pray. Lord, here we are, and we're standing in your presence. And we can do so blameless with great joy because you are sovereign and in control, and you are good, and we can trust you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith. And now as we turn to your word, once again, Lord, we're asking that your spirit would be our teacher. You would take distraction from us and you would accomplish the transformation that you've always intended through the working of your spirit and the power of your word. And so we pray expectantly in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, we're going to continue our look at this book as we're in this series called Forged. And there's really, there's one question that's on the forefront of everyone's mind, especially as we go through this pandemic and the trials of life. And that is, how does God really develop faith in the face of adversity? I mean, as we go through these deep trials of life, how is it that God could really develop us as men and women and boys and girls that have a substantial, mature faith in God. And when we talk about trials, I'm not talking about some of the petty things, you know, like you've got your heart set on a particular parking spot, like for the last 10 seconds, and someone drives in and pulls in right in there. Or like when you're at the grocery store and you're like, oh, that lane with just the 15 or less is open, but then some lady shows up and she's got her cart just piled full and she pulls right in in front of you. Not those kind of trials, not when, like when you lose the game or some, something like of that nature, but I'm talking about the most substantial trials, trials like we are going through right now with this pandemic, with the loss of life and all the sickness, the economic uncertainty, the debt that is escalating, home isolation, all of the problems that we are facing. And furthermore, we experience trouble in this life. How do we actually grow and develop when we face adversity like if our spouse leaves us or one of our kids becomes a prodigal and just starts making a series of just reckless decisions that are going to create huge havoc in their life and in your family? How do we respond when we've been betrayed or our finances are being tested beyond the limits. How does God develop our faith in the face of adversity? I want to introduce you to three men that for the last 2,600 years, they have radically developed the courage and the convictions of believers in God. Their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But you might know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And let me show you how God develops faith in the face of adversity. You'll recall as you come to Daniel chapter 3 that we're going to find them in this very significant situation. And just to kind of give you a little bit of background, remember in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar uh, made his way into Palestine, actually then into Jerusalem, conquered it, 
And upon the death of his dad, the crown prince headed back to Babylon. And when he did, he took some of the utensils from the temple and he took the finest young men that the country had to offer, which included Dan and, uh, Daniel and his three friends. And when they were there, 550 miles away from home, stripped away from their families, they began a three-year extensive process of brainwashing them, educating them in Babylonian culture and in their languages and actually in their literature to make them thoroughly Babylonian. He even changed their names. And so it's after this three years where Daniel and his friends have actually found positions within the court of King Nebuchadnezzar that we have this amazing event that takes place in Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's width six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar creates this massive statue. It is uh, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. It's about the size of an eight-story building. And this didn't just kind of come out of nowhere. If you remember in Daniel chapter 2, the king had a dream. Daniel interpreted it, and Daniel said, your empire, you are like the head of gold. But there's other successive empires that are going to take its place. And he explained world history and outlined. It's a fascinating chapter of Bible prophecy. But Nebuchadnezzar is like, hey, listen, if I'm the head of the gold, there's no way there's going to be any empire after me. And so he had an entire statue, this massive statue made. Now, most likely it was overlaid with gold. And even in the excavations in Babylon, we find all these different statues and they are overlaid with gold. And this likely was one of them. And we also know from the Babylonian records that in the 10th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, there was somewhat of a rebellion and that people were questioning and actually, in, in some cases, even revolting against Nebuchadnezzar. It's in light of this that Nebuchadnezzar has this grand idea. He has this massive statue built. He places it in Dura, which is about six miles south of Babylon, which is interesting. They have actually found in their excavations a really massive, large platform, large enough that could actually even host or hold a statue of this nature. And it seems as with what Nebuchadnezzar is going to do is he's going to unify religion and the government all in one in his image. Take a look, verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the judges, and the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the judges, and the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment You hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But 
whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So here he's trying to unify the government and religion, all one, perhaps to try to put an end of all this rebellion, to set himself as the absolute supreme one. And it's very interesting. He doesn't appeal to truth. He doesn't appeal to beauty, holiness, rather emotion, a cacophony of sound. And he's doing this through brute force, intimidation, and wrath. Listen, if you don't bow down when you hear the symphony going, the band playing its song, and the jazz ensemble start jamming, if you don't bow down and worship this statue, instant immolation. I'm going to incinerate you. And so he had this furnace going. That's pretty a clear decision. Gold statue, bow down or burn. And so he sets it up. And look at this. Pretty much everyone falls in line. Look at verse 7. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Everyone except... Three guys. Look at verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. The Chaldeans are the, um, it's kind of a, the privileged class of wise men in Babylon. And notice, they bring charges against the Jews. These who have been brought in, they, they didn't obey. And it's as if they were looking for them. You see, the Chaldeans had pretty much been aced out by Daniel and his friends. They had, Daniel and his friends had received top places in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. And it's almost as if they forgot that actually Daniel and his friends were the ones that actually saved their lives in chapter 2 because they couldn't interpret the dream and God gave Daniel an understanding of it. And so they're looking and they are bringing charges. And look at what takes place here. Verse 9, and they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live, live forever, okay? See how they're just all kind of kissing up to him, buttering him up? Oh yeah, we live forever, we love you. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. That is exactly what you said. We got it. But, verse 11, Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. That's what you have said. We want you to know there's some foreigners, there's some Jews that are totally disrespecting you. Look at verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, have disregarded you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They have three charges. Listen, these guys, they have no respect for you whatsoever, O king. Furthermore, they will not serve your gods 
and they're not bowing down to the statue. You've got to do something on that. We'll look at verse 13. You want to see what kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was? How would you like to work for this guy? Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Now, he knows these men very well. These are some of his top guys. You know, Nebuchadnezzar could conquer kingdoms and nations and all sorts of people groups, but he never could conquer himself. He flips out into a fit of rage. And so they're brought before him, and look at verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Is it true? Is it true that you will not bow down to my statue? You know, these guys, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could have easily rationalized and just said, okay, this is just kind of a one-time deal. The government is telling us to do this. This is what the king wants us to do. We could just bow down. Furthermore, I mean, uh, you know, we've got families and we could have a really full life. And it's just so much better if we serve in the king's court rather than like burn in the king's furnace and just be ashes, right? You could easily rationalize that you could just get out of this situation, just like, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll, uh, I'll bow down outwardly, but in my heart, I'm standing strong for God. You know, all the rationalization that people do. We've done, right? I want you to know that these men are in a very serious dilemma. They know to disregard and disobey this command from the king to bow down and worship that statue is going to lead to their certain death. On the other hand, these men know God. They don't know just about him. They know him. They know his word. And because they know him, they want to follow his word. You always find that with people who truly know the living God. And they know the Ten Commandments. And they know how they begin, especially the first two. You remember? Like Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. They they know that there is absolutely no way they can bow down and worship a false god because they know the true and living God. And I want you to know that uh, they have faced the ultimate dilemma because their faith is absolutely on the line. I want you to know that's how God develops us as believers. In adversity, he puts our faith to the test. Take a look here. Look at verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar says this, now if you're ready, if you finally got your act together, maybe you misunderstood the directions. I've been announcing this for a long time. Maybe you didn't hear so well. I don't know. You didn't clean your ears. You're not, I'm not sure why you didn't bow down, but I'll tell you what, it's because I'm such a good guy. 
I'm going to give you another opportunity. Now, if you are ready, at the moment, you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre and the trigon, the psaltery and the bagpipe and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. That's going to be so good. You're just a little late, but you know what? I'm going to let it slide. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He's a megalomaniac. His statement is this. You either bow or you burn. Nebuchadnezzar must have had some memory issues because if you've read Daniel chapter 2 at the very end, he, sa- he makes the statement in chapter 2 verse 47. He says, he called God the God of all gods. Daniel's God is the God of all gods and the Lord of the kings. He's the ultimate one. Even though he knew that, he didn't believe it. In fact, he says, who could possibly rescue you from my hands. I want you to know something. Adversity and testing are not divine punishment, but rather for personal development and for putting God on display. That's what adversity and testing do. They're, they're not divine punishment. They're opportunities to grow in your faith and they're opportunities to put God on display. I want you to know that if you are a genuine Christian, your faith is truly in Jesus Christ. You have life and forgiveness in him. Your convictions are going to clash with the culture at times. I want you to think about what's taking place just even worldwide. There are a lot of believers who will not compromise their faith. They will not deny that Jesus Christ is God, that he has risen from the grave, Their hope is certainly in him. They they will not say, well, he's just one of many ways. He's like, no, Jesus is the only way. And it's led to their loss of jobs, to be taken from their families, imprisonment, torture, and sometimes even death. And now I know here in the United States, we don't face furnaces quite like that. But I do want you to know something, and you can see it. The temperature is rising. It's going to take actual convictions to truly stand. Take note of these men. Look at how their faith is being tested and how God is being put in, on display. I want you to know that there is an outward uh, pressure to conform. It's all around. It's in the media. In fact, if you step out of line, whether at school or you say something in the break room, or if you, if you stand for convictions and faith in Christ— it's not always well-received. In some cases, it's going to be mocked. And not only do we have all this outward pressure to conform, but there is an inward propensity to just give in, to sin. I mean, it's, it's difficult, but that is the world in which we live. I mean, think of the pressures that are out there to conform. So, for instance, like uh, to embrace relativism, to deny that there's absolutes that are established by God, to the whole idea to esteem the idea that there is an ultimate authority and that God is it, to 
say that truth is not relative, to believe that Christ is the only way, that his word is inspired and inerrant and absolutely true, I want you to know there is a lot of pressure for you to get rid of those beliefs. The idea that God has established morality and that his way is best, the only way to honor God is to live according to his divine design, I want you to know in terms of ethics and morality, a lot of that just gets completely pushed aside. It runs head to head into a culture that tells you this. You need to replace God with idols. That's the message. You can believe and put your faith in anything but the one true God, and that's going to probably work. Timothy Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, tells us that idols capture our imagination And we can locate them by looking at our daydreams. What do we enjoy imagining? What are our fondest dreams? We look to our idols to love us, to provide us with value and a sense of beauty, significance, and worth. I want you to know that right and wrong are are, are established by revealed truth. They are not developed by the recent trends of society. And so here we have these three Jewish men, these officers in the king's court, and they cannot bow down because they know the one true God. And I want you to know that you and I, as Christians, we are called to obey the government. Any question about that? Romans chapter 13 spells it out. In fact, God gives government, and it's, it's got a role. It's to reward those who do good and right. It also is to punish evildoers. The only exception where you and I would not obey governing authorities is if the government is demanding that we do something that is in direct contradiction to God and his word. To violate our conscience before the living God, like it says in Acts 5.29, at that point, we've got to obey God rather than man. But I want you to know that when we face adversity, do you know how God develops believers? He does so by having their faith tested. But let me show you something else. He develops believers when our God is trusted. Faith means obeying and trusting God regardless of the feelings within us, the circumstances around us, or the consequences before us. Take a look at verse 16. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's like, who who could possibly deliver you from my hand? What God is there that could do that? Look at verse 16. Look at how they're trusting God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These men are not showing any disrespect. They are just stating the matter plainly. They're saying, we have something more valuable than our temporal lives. 
we have relationship with the eternal God. I mean, these three guys, they could have compromised, made all sorts of excuses, but they didn't. They're men of conviction, rooted in relationship with the living God. We can go to your schools, we can learn your languages, we can function in your world, we can understand your culture, but we will not bow down to your gods. Now, this is a completely grim situation facing these men. Look at how their faith is put on display. Look how they're trusting God. You know, they know that God could potentially, miraculously deliver. He doesn't usually do that. Usually things work within kind of an order. You would expect to be thrown into a furnace, you're going to be incinerated. But they know that God is able to provide divine rescue. He's done it on multiple occasions. You remember uh, the whole situation with Noah and the flood? God preserved him. Remember the situation with uh, Israel when they're in captivity in Egypt? God pulls them out of bondage. It was a miracle. And remember when they were like, their back was against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was closing in to kill them all? God parted the Red Sea and he closed it in on the pursuing Egyptians. It was God who rescued Gideon from the Midianites. It was God who was there, who showed himself great when David took on Goliath. In fact, these men from their own personal experiences could recall, remember back in Daniel chapter 1, where the king had taken all these Jewish boys and were going to make them thoroughly Babylonian and not only changed their names, but he had them eat the food from the king's table. And Daniel and his friends said, there's a problem here. We can't eat your feeder hogs and your horse flesh because that goes against the dietary laws that God has given us. And we know him and follow him. So remember they did that little experiment just to have us eat, you know, Campbell's vegetable soup. And let's just see if, if there's any deterioration. In fact, we'll probably even be stronger. And remember, God provided that. He gave them that strength. They knew these things. And you see, in order to really trust God, you have to believe and know that he is good. It's one thing to know that God is able I know that God is all-powerful and he can do all these things. But faith moves us to a place where we not only trust his ability and his sovereignty, but we trust his goodness. I entrust myself to you, for you are loving and you are good and you know what is best. You know, God could do a divine rescue and somehow prevent this whole situation from happening for them being incinerated in the furnace. But you know, God could also do this. He could spare them from having to worship this false God by bringing them into his eternal glory, into heaven itself, into the presence of God Almighty. And you're saying like, well, well, that's not a miracle. I mean, you know, so they died. Well, that's no saving. Really? I want you to know that heaven is absolutely real and it is far more beautiful and filled with great joy, splendor. I mean, 
just a minute in heaven is greater than 10,000 years on this earth. It is just as real. It is powerful. And I want you to know that the provisions of heaven are far greater than just the life here on this earth. I mean, in heaven, there's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no tears. There's great joy. There's eternal splendor. We're going to be continually awed by the power and the works and the grace and the loving kindness of God. It won't be like, oh, we should go and worship. It'll be like, how can we not? Eternally, in his presence. You see, these men are like saying like what Job said. Remember in Job chapter 13, verse 15, he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Even if God should have me slayed, I'm going to hope in him. He's my bottom line. You see, this kind of faith is living with an eternal perspective. Not just the here and now, not just the little dot on the line of eternity. Like, I'm just focused on this dot. This is temporal life. It's an important temporal life. Don't get me wrong. But it is temporal. They're focusing on eternity. Nebuchadnezzar can make their earthly life difficult, but in no way can he have the final word on their eternal destiny. And I want you to see, they're resting in the fact that God is loving and he's good. And notice that they're doing it together. Did you notice that in verse 16, 17, and 18? It was we, we, we. They're in it together. They have camaraderie. The way that you and I really experience this tremendous growth in faith is that if we're actually realizing that we don't stand alone, we stand and serve together. Brian Chapel said this, Biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. It is confidence in a sovereign God. That's what true faith is. So what is but even if he does not for you. Even if he does not heal me, give me the promotion, um, help me to find a great job, restore my finances, even if he does not reconcile this relationship, I am still going to trust him and worship him. You see, our confidence is not in particular outcomes. Our confidence is in a sovereign God who is good and he is loving. And we're ultimately trusting in him. And that's what these guys are doing. You see, this is faith in the furnace. Remember like in Psalm 23, it says in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why is that? For you are with me. That's all I need. Well, take a look. What a statement this is. We're, we're not going to bow down, and even if God doesn't rescue it, just know for certain, we're not going to worship at your idol. We'll look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving the orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. 
And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. And this furnace was used for smelting ore. They would be massive. You, what they would do is they would have this huge opening where they could put down the ore, and, and then they had these like windows, like these panels that they could peel back so the smelters could see how the work was being accomplished and how things were going. And then they'd have some large doors at the bottom under which they could pull out the finished product. It was in such a furnace that Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll tell you what, I am going to make a statement I want that fire seven times hotter, and I want these men thrown in it. And so look at this, verse 21. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, The flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. And can you imagine what that was like? They would have been trembling. They actually watched soldiers perishing because of the heat, and somehow they were forced into this furnace. And they land, and and they're like immediately expressing, thinking they're going to experience all sorts of tremendous pain, literally being burned up, shrieks and screams. But they realize that they're not even feeling warm. Their skin isn't boiling. In fact, they seem to be fine in the midst of the furnace. And verse 24, look at this. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. And he said to the high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into that midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king, that's exactly what we did. Look at this, verse 25. And he said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a sun of the gods, using his polytheistic frame of reference, he says, that fourth one is like a divine being. What an experience this must be. You know, the prophet Isaiah, about a hundred years prior to this event, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, God says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. You see that in verse 25? I see a fourth one in there. There is three. Who's this fourth one? He's like, he's a divine being. Most Bible scholars believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We see different occasions in which the Son of God actually enters in and takes a a visual presence prior to the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. Remember, for instance, uh, when Adam and Eve are walking in the garden, they actually have a face-to-face relationship with the living God. 
Remember uh, the one who feasted with Abraham or the one who wrestled with Jacob or the one who appeared to Joshua as the captain of the Lord of the hosts. This fourth one, I believe, is Jesus himself. And he's with them. Can you imagine what this was like? Here are these guys and they're like, we're, we're not even on fire. And all of a sudden, God is in their midst. Take this in. What possibly was said? Obviously, they were in there for a little bit of time. What is it possibly this fourth man said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Likely they would hear of like, I want you to know that your father is so proud of you. I want you to know that your act of courage, your faith, your statement, your life is going to be remembered forever. There will be countless men and women for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that are going to be encouraged by your faith, your convictions, your love for me. And I wonder, I wonder what those guys said to that fourth man, to God himself, to Jesus. Likely it would be filled with absolute adoration, filled with worship, praise. You know, they thought that they were coming to this event here in Dura to refuse to bow down to an idol. And I want you to know what happened is it became the moment of the greatest worship of their lives. You see, the furnace looked like it was going to be the end of their life. It turned out to be its defining moment, its greatest adventure. It's where they met God. They met him in the furnace. I want you to know there were two blessings that came. The Lord came to them, and he also loosed them from their bonds. Fellowship and freedom are often found in the midst of the furnace when we trust in God. Fellowship, freedom, found in the furnace when we're trusting in God. Well, look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was their hair or their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. There, there was nothing that indicated that they'd been in the furnace. I want you to know that sometimes God actually takes us through the experience. Sometimes he removes the difficulties from us. But I want you to know he always sees us through it. He's with us. It's as if God is even in the midst of our trials, saying, listen, I want you to know that it's dark, it's scary, it's full of unknowns. You might be very afraid. I want you to trust me. I want you to put your faith completely in me. 
I want you to know that not only am I able, but that I am good and that I love you and that I will meet you in the furnace. (laughs) Well, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Friends, as we walk by faith, God transforms us through the trials that we face. And so, friends, what are you going to do when it's your time to stand? When the professor says, well, you know, the Bible is full of inspirational thoughts. It's a good book, but it's, it's not inspired. It's full of errors, and it can't be trusted. Will you stand? What are you going to do when someone says, that nah, Jesus isn't the only way? You better believe in lots of ways to heaven if there's even a heaven at all. Will you stand? Will you stand when a culture calls for you to have looser morals and to not believe in absolute truth, to value that every single person at every stage of development is made in the image of God and the world says, absolutely not. Will you stand? I want you to know that how you respond in life's defining moments is really determined by how you live on a daily basis. And these men, they never forgot this moment. What they thought would be the end of their life turned out to be the greatest moment of their life. I mean, how many of our heroes of the faith had an easy life? I mean, if you look at like Hebrews chapter 11, that was full of all sorts of challenges. Where is it that Jesus said, God just has this wonderful plan for your life and it's going to have no problems. Uh, you're going to be married to a beautiful spouse. She'll or he will never age. You're going to have an awesome house. Your car will be excellent, never have any problems. And you're going to live just one day after another with no problems whatsoever. Where's that in the Bible? It's not. I want you to know, friends, Jesus says, follow me. And no matter what trials and difficulties you might face, what pandemic might strike this earth, I will meet you in the furnace. Friends, this is our time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was their day. Daniel had his day. I want you to know that Peter and Paul, Lydia, uh, they had their day. I want you to know that Priscilla and Aquila and Phoebe, they had their day. Friends, this is our day. And friends, the gospel is this. Emmanuel, God with us. That is the beauty 
of knowing the one true God. It's to be in relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who paid for our sins and is always drawing us closer to him. In fact, he not only came to the earth, he came to the cross, he rose again so he could indwell his people with his presence. And so friends, Jesus is the great deliverer. And there is a furnace that is hotter than the one that Nebuchadnezzar's, and it is hell itself. And that's what God has saved us from when our faith is in Christ. And Jesus said, I want you to know me, Emmanuel, God with us. Like he said at the very end of Matthew chapter 28, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. You see, sometimes God delivers us from the fire. Sometimes he allows us to be consumed by the fire, but he always walks with us through the fire. God is good and he is great. Do you remember several years ago, uh, my good friend, Pastor Gary DeSalvo, he came and he spoke to our church one Sunday morning. He's now with the Lord in the splendors of glory, but do you remember when he was here and his body was stricken with cancer? And he said this, I do not want you to forget. Faith is not about everything turning out okay. Faith is trusting God no matter how things turn out. And friends, we live by faith. This afternoon, tomorrow, as we go through these difficulties and all the uncertainty, we live by faith in him. As we walk by faith, God transforms us through the trials that we face. Let's pray. Lord, opening up Daniel chapter 3 is you opening up our lives and our minds and our hearts to the reality of you, the living God. You are fully able and you are a God of absolute love. For someone who is watching right now, who has never really trusted in you, they know about you, but they never truly trusted you, would they do so now and say, God, I repent of my sins and I put my faith and trust in Christ. Fill me. Lead me, deliver me, save me. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, would you increase our faith and would you give us the ability to experience not only maturity in our walk with you, but to put you on display through the working of your spirit. We tell you we love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.